0: Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography and technology. I'm Kirk McLaren. And I'm Jeff Carlson. Today we are happy to welcome Lauren Karis Short, whose new book, The Complete Guide to Food Photography Has Made Me Drool. Lauren, thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I like food. I like cooking. I'm not a <laughs> cooking fanatic. I have a number of cookbooks. When Jeff and I were talking about this a couple of weeks ago, I said to him, I won't buy a cookbook if it doesn't have photos. Mm-hmm. I need to have the photos so my brain can show me the end game of a recipe. And photos are so important in cookbooks. And I guess they're getting better and better. But for a long time, photos were really just there to just fill up space, weren't they?
1: Mm hmm. Yeah, definitely. I actually have a really similar outlook on cookbooks e- way before I got into food photography. Even in cookbooks where some of the recipes have pictures and some don't, I'll tend to only make the ones that do because, yeah. yeah, like you said, I want to see how it looks. And it's part of what makes cookbooks exciting and gives you a bit of a vision for the recipe.
0: Did, did you get into this because you like cooking?
1: I did. Yeah. So um, I actually started off in a very different career in the the tax world. I was working in London and then we moved to Switzerland and I got another job in tax. Um, I'd always loved cooking, knew I wanted to work in food in some capacity, but I wasn't quite sure what. I did an internship in a bakery for a while, um, sort of dabbled in my own cake business. Um, Tough
0: hours working in a bakery.
1: Yeah, it was really good fun. I really enjoyed it. Um, But yeah, that was, it was a great experience. Um, Yeah, and then, you know, life happened I was getting married and all sorts so having a a practical job made a lot of sense so I got a job in tax did all my qualifications and I did enjoy it honestly I worked with great people um, but it just wasn't what I could see myself doing for the next 40 to 50 years so I started a food blog on the side just as a hobby um, because I've always loved baking and cooking and um, then what happened? was kind of unexpected for me because I'd never really picked up a, a proper camera in my life before um, was that I just fell in love with the photography side of the blog and found that I was more excited to take the pictures of the food than to write the recipe so then I was like ah okay this could be a thing and as I did it more and more started to do a bit of freelance work and it it kind of evolved into yeah where I am now.
0: That's really interesting because most people would have dabbled in photography and sort of rolled this into an activity. The fact that you picked mm-hmm. up photography afterwards is, I don't want to say unusual, but it's not the, the, the normal way. Most people don't do taxes and then get into photography.
1: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I don't think so. It's still a skill that comes in handy sometimes, but I'm glad it's not my nine-to-five anymore. Hey,
0: in a previous life, I worked for a consulting actuarial
2: firm, so I know how you feel.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah, you know that world.
2: (laughs) I was going to say, you're probably one of the few freelance photographers who like actually knows how to do their taxes and and, and actually does their taxes. So like already you're a step up. (laughs) Pro tip,
1: open up a
0: tax consultancy for freelance photographers because... Oh my word.
1: (laughs) Maybe that's my next move after this. So
0: what I find, uh, as I was looking through the book, I mean, I, I had an idea about how this was done. I've seen things about food photography before. But it made me realize all the detail. It's like doing fashion photography, except with models that don't move and talk back to you.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, which I guess in is has its pros and cons. It's pros in the sense of it will do whatever you want it to do. But in another sense, you have to do everything with it that you want it to do. You can't just say, oh, could you just turn that way a bit? Or can you just look a little bit more shiny? <laughs> and." fresh please it's it's a very involved type of photography it's I guess it's like any other kind of still life photography where you're really in control of the environment and the subject so yeah it makes it quite a long process sometimes I was
0: wondering how long a shoot takes for you because we'll we'll go into the details of the fact that you've got the Mm -hmm um, the makeup artist for the food, which is the food stylist. And you've got the lighting to set up and you've got to prep everything. Either if it's cold, you've got to be, keep it in the freezer or the fridge and all that. that's complicated, but what's the average time if you're shooting, let's say a recipe where you're shooting anywhere from two or three to a dozen photos.
1: I would say it does depend on the shoot, but probably the average would be one to three hours. Maybe. Oh, that's not
0: bad. Okay. Yeah,
1: it's. I mean, it's definitely gotten quicker over the years, and there's some things that you just have to be quicker about, like ice yeah. cream or <laughs> something like that. Um, and in those situations, I have a bit of a different process where I'll use a stand-in first to make sure that the lighting and the composition yeah. and everything is is ready to go, and then I can bring in the the food at the last minute. Um, but yeah, I mean, if it's a client shoot and the clients are here, it can run longer depending. How many different scenes and stuff, but an average, yeah, probably a couple of hours, something like that. Okay.
0: I would have expected it took more than that, but I guess you have your own studio, either home studio or not at home.
1: Yeah. Well, sort of at home. <laughs> um, I, I, I have, well, a
0: studio for this could just be a spare room, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. And for me, it wasn't even a spare room at the beginning. It was just a corner of my living room, um, for quite a long time. And then it became a spare bedroom situation. And now I've just actually a few months ago moved into a dedicated studio space, um, which is a luxury for yeah. sure. Um And not something that's necessary, but it's definitely been something that I've really enjoyed having, especially when I've had clients and they've got space to actually be here and get involved and everyone isn't on top of each yeah. other. And yes, yeah, it's, it's very nice to have that, but it's not necessary.
2: And I would imagine you don't have to do as much tear down setup here or you know a- after a long day of shooting you can just leave your lights and everything there rather than taking yeah. everything down because you really want to have dinner and watch some TV or something.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's actually been one of the most um transformative things is just that that 2 hours that I was mentioning does not include the setup, tear down, preparation of the food. That's more like just the shoot. Ah. So for sure having a separate space is Nice that I can leave soft boxes up and not have to, you know, constantly be taking things up and down, which does make the whole workflow of a shoot a bit more efficient as well.
0: Do you have a kitchen in this studio?
1: I do. Um, you I kind have, of need to, it's don't sort you? Of just like a, yeah, you do really. Um, obviously, when I was working at home, I had our home kitchen and I could sort of ferry stuff between there and the bedroom. But now. Um, my studio is it's just kind of one big room. So I've got an IKEA kitchen in the corner, which works really, really well. Um, and I set it up in a way that it could also serve as a shooting space. So right. if there needed to be a brand who needs something where they need photos of the cooking process or something like that, the kitchen itself can be used for that as well.
0: So the first and I guess the most important element of this is lighting, isn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's why I made it chapter 1 of the book because probably for most kinds of photography, right, lighting is the thing that will transform a photo the most.
2: That was one of the first things that stuck out to me because normally uh, and I'm generalizing in a big way, but um you know, a, a book like this you would talk about composition and placement and all of that. And so I was a little surprised that you mm-hmm. jumped right into lighting, but for food photography because, as you mentioned earlier, you're controlling everything. You're controlling the light, the ambient light, you know, everything, everything, and you want to have that control. Uh, can you tell us more? And, you know, for people who who uh, don't have the book yet and may not have done much more food photography, can you go into a, a little bit of, of why the lighting is so important. Because, you know, like, hey, I've got a nice big window. I'll just take some pictures there. <laughs> versus what you're talking about
1: yeah absolutely i think with food photography the lighting is going to define the mood of the photo and that can really depend on what it is you're trying to capture are you trying to get a rustic country scene where you're imagining you know some light coming through a little dark window into a wooden kitchen or are you going for a modern light, bright restaurant with very clean lines and a lot of light. Those two lighting situations are very different. And if you try to light them the same, neither of them is going to have the right effect. So being able to control your lighting is probably for me, it's like step one of defining the story of the image that you're trying to shoot. Um, And then to me, next comes the composition and the props and all of that kind of supporting it. Because I think those things are a little bit more forgiving when it comes to creating a scene with a story and a mood. But the lighting, you can't change that if you've got a huge bright window and you're trying to capture something dark and moody and atmospheric, it's just not going to (laughs) happen. So, yeah. So
0: how did you learn this? Because you weren't a photographer originally, you said um how did you dive in and figure all this out because these photos are just extraordinary in your book they're all wonderful
1: thank you so much um honestly it's been a lot of years of self-learning practice um research i studied a lot of books one of my favorite books is um, light science and magic which is not specifically a food photography book but there are some examples of products and things in there but just understanding the fundamentals of light overall yeah. is going to help you in whatever kind of photography you do. So that was a huge thing for me. Yeah.
0: It has sections on angles and and light versus yeah. distance and all that, the fall off and things. Um, it's a very useful book.
1: Yeah. It, it's a great book. It's one I recommend all the time to people who are starting out and like, where do I start with this? I'm like, this is a really good starting point. Um, and then yeah, a lot of practice, <laughs> which. Definitely in the beginning feels frustrating, but I think that's just the process of sure. learning. Um, you have to go through figuring out what doesn't work to get to what does work. Um, I, I think maybe it's the tax side of me that is quite technical. I, I've always had that sort of mathsy technical side of myself as well as the creative side. So I really enjoy knowing why of things. So I really, I, I want to know how a sensor works, why it works. What does this mean? What does that setting mean? So really learning the ins and outs of that gave me a lot of I always sort of explain to people like when you have that technical knowledge, you have the ability to make a creative decision and actually know how to execute what the vision in your mind is whereas if you're sort of just winging it in auto mode, you you don't give yourself as much opportunity to exercise your creativity in the same way so Yeah, a lot of self-study, a lot of YouTube videos, a lot of courses, a lot of books.
0: Did you start out by just cooking a lot of your own meals and photographing them?
1: Yeah, exactly. So with my food blog, um, I started that like 2015. And that was kind of my whole practice thing. And the first year of photos are not good. It is still online. (laughs) I haven't taken it down. Um and I think it you can clearly see the evolution of when I had no idea what I was doing through to just every single shoot I did trying to improve on it and you know get a little bit better as as I shot yeah just anything
2: Even though you're focusing so much on the lighting uh I want to point out that in the book most of your setups you're basically using one light and some modifiers either like a softbox or a bounce mm-hmm. card or something like that so you know I think a lot of people get scared by lighting and mm-hmm. don't really know what to do and this is sort of reassuring because oh my gosh it looks so complicated but as long as you have one light and you know how to move it around a little bit it's not that difficult and I think the book does a really good job of of showing that that you know in fact you know there's one section that just talks about using multiple lights that that's really just kind of a quick overview do you find that, mm-hmm. that, that you're just not using multiple lights or, um, you know, is everything pretty much just your one light source and then uh, V cards and all of that?
1: Yeah, the majority of the time I'm I'm using a single light setup. And I think for food, the scenes themselves are not normally that big. So two lights aren't that necessary unless you've got so the exception would be something like a product shot or a more commercial style bottle shot. But even then, I might use one light and move it around. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a lot you can do with one light, different modifiers. And that's a big thing that I wanted to highlight in the book. And I've got a whole page um, with an example just of some artichokes on a, on a flatboard, just showing how different they look just by switching out the modifier. And how that can be such a powerful thing with the same single flash gun, just a really basic speed light, you can really achieve almost infinite different looks just by changing the modifier. So for me, I find that is flexible enough 90% of the time.
0: That's interesting. So uh, we had uh, Sandra Cohn on a while back and she does portraits of people. And I think she generally works with two lights, maybe even three, mm-hmm. um, but, it, but it makes more sense with food where you're often shooting top down or at a 45 degree angle. So you don't need to light the other side of the face, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Food in many ways is more forgiving. And I think it looks more natural to have that shadow on one side and the light on another side with food, because it looks like the pie you've put on the windowsill, right? The way the light highlights it.
1: Yeah, exactly. I love having quite, I love that contrast of highlight and shadow in food images. Um, because otherwise I think food has a tendency to look very flat very easily. Um, It's not got as much depth as like Mm. a face or, you know, another subject. You're talking about a pie could be one and a half to two inches high. So unless you've got that contrast, it can start to look just, yeah, a bit flat, a bit boring. Um, And for me personally, I really like that shadow increases that sort of 3d effect it brings you into the picture and like you said most of the time we're trying to emulate what you actually see in real life it's uh, even when you're talking about like brand work they want to show what their product actually looks like to the person who hopefully will buy it or you know order it or something like that and if it looks too artificially studio lit it's not really generally what we're going for with food
0: the number of times i've bought something where the picture on the package doesn't look anything like the food inside <laughs> people
1: say this to yeah. me all the time as soon as they find out what i do they're like but that mcdonald's burger yeah. never looks the same yeah when, yeah, yeah. When not just
0: that. so you talk about composition there's one thing i find that's really interesting and not just in the photos in your book but in photos in general is food photography often crops items like dishes and plates and things. And it kind of gives mm-hmm. a feeling that the spread is endless.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, it's something that I like to teach my students as well as so I call it intentional cropping. So if you have maybe three plates, I would have one as the main focal point, And then another one sort of really intentionally cropped, like a good third to half the plate cropped off. I think if you sort of just skim the edge, it can look a bit accidental, like, Oh, just kind of missed, miss the frame a bit. Um, but yeah, just giving this impression that what you're seeing is a snippet of the table or the preparation space or the restaurant. And there's more going on outside of this. It's not always something I do. I, I also do quite enjoy shooting really minimal things where you've just got the subject and a, and a background, but yeah, I think the idea that there's always more going on outside of this frame can. It just adds to that story element. It gives the viewer sort of an idea of how this extends beyond the frame as well, which is,
0: yeah, it's cool. So you have a whole section on food styling, and we know that it's all fake, that you do all sorts of fake things to make it look like real food. (laughs) I mean, I saw a YouTube video once that they, in order to shoot pancakes with maple syrup, they poured motor oil on the pancakes because maple syrup doesn't look like maple syrup. Do you have to do a lot of trickery like that?
1: Honestly, not as much as okay. you think. Um, I mean, as a food photographer, I'm not a food stylist. Um, I think it's important as a food photographer to have some knowledge of food styling, but I would never take a job as a food stylist on a set because it's just not my area of expertise. Um, I think there the food photography definitely has a reputation for ice cream as mashed potatoes and everything like that. Yeah. And I think it, It used to be like that more than it is now. Um, Advertising standards have sort of tightened up. So if you're shooting something that is, you know, selling a product, the photo has to be of the actual product, which in my opinion is a good thing. Um, So it's definitely not something that I come across that often. More of the things I end up doing is just altering the way I cook something or giving it a bit of a helping hand on set. So I typically like if I was shooting something, say, with like broccolini on the side, I'm probably not going to fully cook it the way that I would if I was actually serving it. I'll undercook it a little bit or just blanch it. So it looks really nice and bright and green and it it looks great. It looks fresh, but it's probably way too crunchy that you wouldn't actually serve it or give things a little bit of an oil coating. Ah, Um, One of my, probably one of my more, um, Food styly tips that I do quite often is I have a little spray bottle filled with a mixture of 50% glycerin and 50% water. You can spray that on anything fruits, vegetables, glasses, and it gives that sort of beaded up condensation effect, but it doesn't run off or dry or melt. So it gives you more time. Okay. Um, So that's probably the thing that I would do the most common that you wouldn't necessarily eat (laughs) directly.
2: You mentioned time because time seems to be such a much bigger factor here uh mm-hmm. you, you know not only just trying to to get things done in a in a you know good time for your time and client's time but the very few times that I've tried to do some food photography it always seems like a race like this thing is going to wilt this thing is going to melt this you know it 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 looked really good a minute ago but then I had to, you know, mess with my light and now it's just kind of like flopped dead. Do you have any tips or anything for <laughs> dealing with with food? Particularly, I mean, I, I am sort of assuming that a lot of our listeners do not do this on the regular and we'd like to, you know, get a glimpse into the professional side of things. Mm-hmm. So, how do you deal with uh, you know, this this time crunch of having to deal with food that is not going to cooperate with you.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So a huge thing for me is pre-lighting. So I'll always set up my scene with the props, even maybe just some stand-in food. Like if it's a salad, I'll just throw a bit of lettuce in the bowl that I'm going to actually serve it in just to have something there. And I'll take all the shots I need to do all my lighting adjustments and, you know, get everything else looking how I want it to look. And then bring in that food fresh at the last minute. So I'm pretty much ready to push the shutter and get the shot. Um, I don't want something sitting there longer than it needs to be. Um, especially with things like ice cream, drinks that have ice, you know, you've got a very limited time with those things. So pre-lighting is one of the the most important things that I do and has really transformed sort of the quality of the subjects that I can shoot. But- and it almost takes that pressure off as well, because you have time to kind of play around with it without thinking like, oh, it's it's all going to wilt in front of me and now I'm rushing and this isn't so good and that's not how I want it to be.
0: You're in Switzerland. Do you do all your ice cream photography in the winter with the windows open? Wouldn't that
1: make it easier? Oh, it would. As Switzerland don't have air conditioning. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, nothing like that. Um, I would love to say that I could only photograph ice cream in the winter, but it it really depends what people need when. Um, so yeah, again, pre lighting is is definitely my friend when it comes to those things.
2: So you say uh, it depends on what people need when. Do you find your your work to be seasonal? I mean, are you shooting things now in the summer that would be appropriate for say magazines? You know, like like winter dishes, holiday dishes, things like that, or mm-hmm. does it all? not really subscribe to a time zone like that.
1: It depends on the job. If it's a lot of the work I do is sort of with specific brands or things for their products, so mm. it's not necessarily seasonal. Um but for sure we we have this thing I'm I'm sure other photography niches maybe fashion and stuff have it as well where we call it Christmas in yeah. July mm-hmm. where everyone's sort of shooting for the winter in the summer which with food can be really tricky especially in well i i don't know about other countries but in switzerland the food we have is very seasonal which is a great thing in itself i'm all for sustainability eating berries in the summer and not eating them in november you know all of that kind of thing Mm -hmm. but then when you've got a job that requires you to make a pumpkin soup in july and there's no pumpkins anywhere then it it can be challenging just sourcing the things that you need um well
0: do you just fake it and Put in some food coloring in a leek and potato soup, for example.
1: I've never put food coloring in a leek and potato soup, but I, I think it would be if it was something where there could be a substitute, like um, you know you could use sweet potato instead of squash or. Um, recently I had to make a cherry pie and I had to use frozen cherries and like that was fine. Yeah. But if it's something like you need to do a whole baked squash.
0: Right. You need squash. squash.
1: So it it, (laughs) it depends. Sometimes there are ways that you can get around it, but other times, yeah, it's just, it's just another complication, but it's just something I'm sure every industry has something similar.
2: Another thing I wanted to mention that you cover in the book is a lot of the the, the post editing that gets done and and compositing things because
1: mm-hmm.
2: again this is a thing where you want to try to get I mean like like everything you want to try to get it as good as you can in camera but um, I know that there are a few examples and I'll also point people um, you made some videos that go along with this and yeah uh, I I watched a video of you know you doing the spice cake and to get this the the spice cake shot and the spoon and the drizzle of the caramel, like that required compositing Mm -hmm. some images together. Um, How often do you find yourself doing that? And is it pretty complicated usually, or uh, just sort of basic Photoshop layering stuff?
1: Mm -hmm. Um, I would say I end up doing it quite often when I've got an action shot. So in the book, like you said, the caramel cake, um, there's sort of a cake sitting on a cake stand, and then I'm drizzling, or my food stylist is drizzling some caramel on the top. And probably most of the time, you're not going to get the perfect sort of swizzle drizzle and the cake looking exactly how you want it to in the same shot because you might get that perfect drizzle way later in the shoot, and by that time the cake is covered in caramel and it doesn't look great. Yeah. Um. So I end up compositing. For most of those shots. I almost go into them planning to do that. Um, sometimes it's also just a focus thing, depending on how deep the subject is that I'm shooting. It's almost like a, a little bit of focus stacking where I really want the front of the cake to be in focus, but I also want that drizzle to be really nice and sharp. So I might have to just move the focus and then shoot the drizzle. Um, but it's definitely for those kinds of things. It's not anything complicated. It, It really is normally a two-layer, maximum three-layer Photoshop situation where I just mask it in and then do any cleanups.
0: Well, there's an example in the book of a photo of a bottle of monkey shoulder whiskey where you took five photos and put them together in order to get the different elements of the lighting just right.
1: Mm -hmm. Yes. So that's probably one of the more complicated compositing situations. And this is one of those things where the reason I did that was because I shot this as a one light setup up to kind of show people that you can do it. Not that necessarily you always would with a bottle or a drink. That's sort of where you might bring in multiple lights. So you have one doing the back glow, one doing the rim light, one doing the key light.
0: Because of the glass that moves, that, that changes the direction of the light.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, say you have a softbox on the side. If you've got it around enough to light the label, you're probably going to have a big, yeah. ugly strip down. Yeah. The side of the bottle. So taking those things separately and having a shot where you're focusing on the cap and a shot where you're focusing on the label and then the rim and the glow of the bottle, being able to put those together afterwards is a little, it's time consuming more than complicated. But your camera's
0: in the same position for every shot, right? So you don't have to realign.
1: Yes, that's really important. Is actually, if it was to move, that yeah, becomes a real yeah. pain because I want those shots to line up exactly so that I don't have to be aligning anything. I could just, you know, get my mask out, bring the label in, bring the cap in and just bring the parts of those layers that I want.
0: And when you shoot cocktails, are these the actual cocktails or do you sometimes alter the contents because of the way it's going to work with the light?
1: Um, no, I think with the cocktails, mostly they or even, yeah, they're, they're generally the real thing. Um, I mean, you could sort of think, well, if you're shooting a martini, couldn't you just shoot a glass of water? Wouldn't it look the same? No,
0: because then you don't get the legs on the inside of the glass.
1: Exactly. It it just doesn't behave yeah. the same. Like alcohol does behave in a certain way. So even though it's they're both clear.
0: But but you could just pour vodka or gin without making the actual martini.
1: That is true. Yes, you could do. <laughs> um, yeah, for I, sure. I speak as
0: someone who has been learning cocktails in the second year of lockdown.
1: Yes. That became our hobby as well. I have to say, I I do enjoy a good Negroni now.
0: (laughs) Oh, I hate the Negroni. Oh God, that's terrible. I I have perfected the martini and I'm going to tell you the cranberry margarita, equal parts of cranberry and lime juice, of pure cranberry juice, not the kind of cranberry drink with sugar and water, but add as much cranberry juice as lime juice and it's a game changer.
1: I'll have to try that because the margarita is also our favorite. Okay. So what's next?
0: Are you going to start working with a cookbook author, for example, to make a cookbook?
1: Who knows? Possibly. Um, At the moment, I don't have anything like that in the pipeline. What I'm focusing on at the moment is Food Photography Academy, which is my online school with all my online courses. I'm going to be working on a lighting course to come out before the end of this year. Um, So that will complement the book really well to have a lot of visual demonstrations of all the different lighting setups I do, flash tutorials all of those things. So that's, that's kind of my main focus at the moment. Um, Yeah. Continuing with YouTube and Food Photography Academy and seeing, seeing where it goes.
0: Okay. Lauren, thanks again for joining us. The book is called The Complete Guide to Food Photography from Rocky Nook. You can get this book for 40% off with the discount code Lauren 40. L-A-U-R-E-N 40. Don't tell them. This is like a special discount code. (laughs) Um, And if you are subscribed to our newsletter, we'll be giving away two copies of the book to lucky subscribers. You don't have to do anything. Just subscribe to the newsletter, go to photoactive.co, sign up for the newsletter, and we'll only send you messages every two weeks when we have a podcast coming out, and you're automatically entered into the drawing. Warren, thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
2: Okay,
0: time for our snapshots. What have you got, Jeff?
2: Well, my snapshot this week is a webcam. Uh, I've written about webcams, especially at the beginning of uh, COVID lockdown, and uh, I found out about this new one. It's called the Insta 360 Link. Now, Insta 360 is a company. They've made 360 degree little handheld cameras, and they've moved into this this webcam. And let me tell you, the webcam market is so in need of Something because most of them are just crap. Um, I I can put some links to articles that I've written about how most of them are what? Most of them are crap. They're terrible. Really? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Most okay. most standalone webcams are based on really old technology. They just don't work very well. And so I think because of COVID and because of so many people working at home, we're finally seeing some innovation. And you know, companies actually not just skirting by on the garbage that they've had for a long time so anyway so <laughs> what's nice about this insta 360 link um, it's it let me step back it's expensive it's like three hundred dollars for this okay and so so this is going to be for somebody who you know has more dedicated needs you are you know giving presentations you are you know kind of presenting a a more professional image than, you know, just, hey, I'm a home worker and I'm going to check in every once in a while with my team kind of a thing. But what's interesting about it is it has basically a, a camera on a little gimbal arm that can move. And it has a mode where it will follow you. So if you are moving around, it'll keep you centered but it can also change its its digital zoom. So maybe you're just showing your head or maybe your, your head and torso or your full body if you're standing up. And there's a whiteboard mode where you can you know, be like working on a whiteboard. And um, part of my interest in this is it's using a lot of AI technology. And if you, for example, hold your hand up to it, just like like palm facing the camera, it recognizes that and triggers that to switch between just a static mode to look at you versus follow you around. So it's it's a really interesting uh, application of technology. Um, I didn't buy this. I, I have this uh, out for review. I'm going to probably write about it for um, my column in Popular Photography. But it's it's a cool idea, and I think for people who who really need higher quality especially higher quality than what you're going to get on your your computer itself uh it's it's really pretty cool
0: so for all those people who are regular interviewees on cable news buy this webcam oh my god because all of the bad webcams or the 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 laptop looking up under their chins and and the bad lighting <laughs> it's incredible how bad it is
2: it, it is amazing how many people that you still see you know, three years into the pandemic, that, or sorry, two years, whatever it is, it's five hundred years into the pandemic, uh, <laughs> that they, the eleven thousandth wave, the has eleven thousandth wave, that you have so many people on TV who are working from home, and you're right, you're like, oh look, here's this respected individual, and I can see every hair in his nose because I'm basically just looking straight <laughs> up his nose. It's it's amazing. So, uh, Kirk, what do you have
0: this week? I got a new Mac. I got myself a M2 MacBook Air. Ooh. Now, I bought one of these when it first came out. I bought it to review, and I was going to keep it, but I decided to return it because my M1 MacBook air it was nearly two years ago the M1 MacBook Air came out. I bought it with eight gigabytes of RAM and 128 gigabyte SSD, and it was fine. With my MacBook Air, I bought the base model, nine hundred ninety nine dollars. 8 gigabytes of RAM, 256 SSD. With this one, I bought the same, but there's a problem with these uh, new Macs that if you get the 256 gigabyte SSD, it's a lot slower than the 512. And I'm talking it's half as fast, maybe 53% as fast, but it's noticeable. Now, you won't see this in all your real world activities, but what I do notice with the faster SSD is it's really snappy. It starts up a lot more quickly, et cetera. One of the reasons I decided to spec this out is because I'm thinking this is a laptop I'll keep five years. I probably mentioned this a couple years ago with the iMac, with the M1 iMac. Um, I have the same thoughts. These processors are so good, we won't need to upgrade for a long time. I've got 16 gigs and a terabyte in my iMac. got 16 gigs and 512 in the MacBook Air. And I even went for the 10-core graphics thing, because why not? If I'm going to spec it out, go all the way. (laughs) I like the form factor. I like the color. I don't care about the fingerprints. Uh, Because I got Midnight. But I really think this is, they're not going to change this form factor for many years. And and this is going to be a laptop I think that's going to last a long time. It's a lot more expensive than the M1 MacBook Air. They're still selling the M1 model. But if you don't have an M1 and you're just upgrading to an M processor, MacBook Air, I'd strongly recommend getting one of these.
2: I would also point out that uh, the battery life on these is amazing. And I have the the M1 Max MacBook Pro that came out at the end of last year. And just as a, as a real-world example, yesterday, I had to take my car in to get it serviced. And so I went to a coffee shop, and I was sitting outside in this outdoor seating, and I opened up my laptop, and I realized that I had forgotten to charge it, and I had 30% uh, charge left. Now, on my old 16-inch Intel MacBook Pro that I had... That would have given me maybe twenty, thirty minutes, and I would have been out of luck. Especially because I was sitting outside. There's no, there's no power outside in in the little outdoor things that they've set up. Uh, at, with this, I didn't even think twice about it, other than that little vestigial memory of, oh, geez, I only have thirty uh, percent. I worked there for an hour and a half, and was down to about twenty-seven percent. Like it's, it's if you have not gotten a M1 or M2 based laptop, you will not believe the battery life until you actually have one. In
0: addition, I got the 67 watt power adapter and this thing charges really fast. I I didn't time it, but I charged from 50% to 100% this morning in I don't know less than a half hour. Good heavens. So, if you do need to charge it quickly, uh spend a little bit extra. It's not that much extra, but spend a little bit more to get the 67 watt adapter. Okay, that's enough. It's dinner time and I'm thinking about how the food I'm going to make for dinner is going to look. This is going to really obsess
2: me for a while here. (laughs) Time to go take some pictures. All right. Until next time, Jeff. Until next time.
0: Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the end. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash photoactivecast. That's photoactivecast in one word. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review in iTunes or in your podcast.